through February 28th, get a choice of offers from Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, like up to 24 months no payments and no interest, or up to $1,125 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. It is Election Day in Milwaukee, and what happens today at the election will tell you a lot about I guess how serious people really are in dealing with the issue of, of crime because there's a handful of the candidates that are running that really don't want to confront the crime issue. They, they want to see the out-of-control crime problem in Milwaukee as being, well, it, we, we need more social services and we need more midnight basketball and we need more driver's ed. Yeah, like, and, and again, I, I, I don't have a problem if you want to have driver's ed and stuff, but let, let's let's understand something. Lack of driver's ed is not the reason why you have 15-year-old kids stealing car after car after car, driving 95 miles an hour, blowing through red lights, and, and trying to evade the police. Driver's ed has nothing to do with it. Accountability has everything to do with it. And there's a few candidates out there that have... I think very, very little regard for that, and they just don't want to lock people up. They want to say, oh, that, that's just not the response. You know, we've tried it and it hasn't worked. No, we haven't tried that. We don't lock people up. John Chisholm, the district attorney in Milwaukee County, goes out of his way to not hold people responsible. And so the question becomes, who is going to emerge from this primary? Will it be one of the handful of candidates that at least, and I, I would include Cavalier Johnson, Bob Donovan, maybe Ernell Lucas, maybe. Part of the problem is, though, even though he comes from a law enforcement background, he's got significant ties to John Chisholm and has been extremely reluctant to criticize the district attorney's office, which tells me I, I don't know that you're going to see any sort of major change. But will it be one of those candidates or two of the candidates that at least talk about wanting to deal with crime versus a number of the other candidates who clearly I don't think get it when it comes to the out-of-control crime problem. So we'll know tonight whether or not people are really serious turning out as to whether or not they want to reduce the level of crime. Meanwhile, another couple day, another day, more horrible crime in the city of Milwaukee. 6.30 p.m. yesterday, an 80-year-old man was shot during the robbery near 42nd and Capitol. Now, Capitol Drive has become, well, in certain respects, whether it's reckless driving or whether it's just the out-of-control crime, Capitol Drive has really become, you know, one of the new areas where it seems to me you want to avoid, if at all possible. Um, they're, they're not giving much details. Police are seeking an unknown suspect, but it's somebody who stuck up an 80-year-old man and shot him during the, the robbery. Apparently, um, he they, at least they think he's going to survive, which is, in fact, the, the good news. But you know, eighty-year-old guy out on the street, six thirty. It's not. It's not. It's like it's four in the morning. It's six thirty in the evening on Capitol Drive, forty-second and Capitol, and you're robbed and you're shot. And as we often talk about on this program, anytime you're shot, it's but for the grace of God that that doesn't turn into a homicide. In addition, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. This. There's a story on Fox 6, that, and I haven't seen it anywhere else, that was just absolutely amazing. You remember 
the story about a week or two ago where you had the kid that was fleeing from police in a stolen car, of course, high-speed chase that started like on 62nd and Capital or something like that, and ended up on like 71st and Valite. The car went airborne and landed in that used car. There was a used car lot, and it destroyed a whole bunch of cars. Well, okay, it, it's it's happened again, and the footage of this is absolutely amazing. If you haven't seen it, I've got a link to it on my Twitter account again. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 from um, what, what happened at Milwaukee Rosen Automotive. Uh, I get this was over the weekend. And, again, what happens is you see a speeding driver going a high rate of speed, loses control of the car, and plows into several cars that are parked on on the dealership. They estimate that about eight cars were smashed into. A couple are completely totaled, including a couple you know, cars that really have pretty high sticker prices on them. One car, they say, was a $40,000 vehicle. The other one was something in that neighborhood. But it's one of these deals where somebody, again, loses control at a high rate of speed. So far, the police aren't saying anything about the circumstances behind it. I am willing to be proven wrong on this. But if we know anything, if history tells us anything, we know what's going to turn out here. It's going to be a driver who was driving a stolen vehicle, high rate of speed, loses control, and causes all this various damage. You know, And if you look at the video of this, it's just absolutely amazing. But again, it underscores what's going on on the mean streets of Milwaukee. That it's It's just not safe anywhere. And you wonder how these businesses can continue to operate because here, here you're in a situation, I understand they've got insurance and things like that, but you're facing like a huge supply chain problem. There's already issues with able to get inventory, and now you have this car dealership that's just had six to eight vehicles destroyed because somebody driving at an extremely high rate of speed, loses control and plows into all these different vehicles. I mean, seriously, this is a question for people to ask as they go to the polls, and that question is, if we don't get a handle on crime around here, when, when is would the last person to leave Milwaukee please be sure to turn out the lights? When we come back, controversy again at the Winter Olympics. I'll explain. We'll discuss. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. I probably know a little more about figure skating than, than most guys would do, not because I participated in it, not because I had a kid that participated in it, because my, my late wife was fascinated with, with women's figure skating and women's gymnastics, and she would travel across the country um, and and to Canada on a couple different occasions to, to watch like the U.S. figure skating championships and the national figure skating championships. And I, I think um, when the Olympics were in Salt Lake City, she went to the Olympics and, and watched the figure skating championships. And, and while she did that a, a lot of times without me because, you know, it's, it's what husbands do, I, I would accompany for her for time to time. And it's always, I always kind of thought, okay, this is, you know, she lets me go to Las Vegas to see Jimmy Buffett shows and things like that. And so at least I can do with, I'll, I'll, I'll go with her to, to see some of the figure skating stuff. I, I never, I never really caught the bug, but I mean, I, I'd, I'd sit there and, and watch it. And I can remember when women's figure skating was really, really big. Remember all the controversy involving Nancy uh, Kerrigan and 
Tanya Harding and things like that, all, all the, the all the drama and stuff. And figure skating has kind of fallen in and out of favor. But my my late wife really um, she just she enjoyed it. So I, I've always sort of paid attention to it again, just because I, I I remember how much pleasure it gave her. So right now. I think it's fair to argue that women's figure skating is probably one of the two or three signature events of of the Olympics. And and you you can figure out what the other ones would be. Um, Hockey, I think, would be another one. But but women's figure skating is definitely one of the things from perspective of ratings or or whatever that drives a a lot of stuff. So there is a controversy that is brewing if you haven't seen this. The Russian Olympic team, the women's figure skaters, are, I think, probably generally agreed to be the, the best in the world right right now. Um, and there's one figure skater in particular. She's 15 years old. Her name is Camilla Valueva, and she's won every international competition that she has entered this year. She is the, I, I think, overwhelming favorite to win Olympic gold. As a matter of fact, she skated in the short program today. And the way the way it works at the Olympics is there, there's two performances. One is the short program, and then you have your long program. And they, they combine the scores. The long program counts the more than the short program. But they, they put the scores together, and they have a formula, and whoever has the most points ends up winning. Well, um, Camilla Villueva, she skated today, and, and she actually, despite not, I'm told, doing the greatest performance, she's in first place as, as it stands now. And Russians are also in, I believe, second and fourth place as well. So there, there's a real, um, there's a real chance that you know she, along with her two Russian teammates, could could sweep. The, the entire competition, you know, who knows? Okay, so Jeff, why are we talking about women's figure skating? What is the controversy? Well, if you haven't been following it, they, the, the Olympics drug test, you know, and, and we, we know that you have athletes who have engaged in, um, you know, taking various sort of drugs, performance enhancing drugs over the years. So there's very strict rules. So she, she goes in for her Olympic test and she tests positive for a, a drug called trimetadazine, which is it, it's a it's a drug that that they they give you they give people like for, for heart issues that that's what the drug is. But it also the way it operates it's a banned substance because it can increase your stamina. So now you have a 15 year old that that's tested positive for this. And by the way, the the Russian coach has been uniformly. The, the general sentiment in the figure skating community is that the Russian coach is a cheater and, and who's been doing stuff like this for years. So, okay, you have this 15-year-old prodigy who now tests positive for this banned substance. So, pursuant to Olympic rules, she gets tossed out of the Olympics. Her excuse, so she appeals this, the excuse that her handlers are offering is that her grandfather takes this, this drug. And they're saying, well, here's what what could have happened. It could have gotten into her body accidentally because, all right, the grandfather takes this. And um, maybe her grandfather drank something from a glass. Saliva got in the glass. 
and she somehow later used the glass. That, that's kind of the explanation that's being offered. It's like, well, it, it might have been inadvertent coming from, again, the, the grandfather because he took it and there might have been traces or whatever. I mean, that, that's the story they're giving. In, in any event, what happened is she, she was banned from the Olympics because she's tested positive. So she appeals this, and the Court of Appeals decides, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to allow her to continue to compete. But what we're going to say is she can compete, but if she wins, she doesn't automatically get the gold medal or the bronze medal or the silver medal. What's going to happen is we're not going to give anybody any medals, and we're going to um, just proceed, have to allow, allow this appeal to process. So maybe 60, 90, 120 days, six months from now, we'll make an ultimate decision about whether she should be disqualified or not. But nobody gets medals right now. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My, my response is, give me a break. I, I mean, seriously, why have these rules? To me... It doesn't matter, or it shouldn't matter, how the banned substance got into her system. Does it make any difference whether she intentionally took it? Does it make any difference whether it was inadvertently taken? And again, this, I mean, I don't know how many people remember the old Rube Goldberg stuff where you had all the different machinations and instead of just a simple mousetrap, you went through like 14 different things. The ball has to fall on the lever and the lever has to knock over the dominoes and ultimately it causes it to fall. Does it make any difference how the banned substance got into her system, whether she took it intentionally or whether it was inadvertent because she drank out of a glass that her grandfather drank out of, isn't the point that she's not allowed to have this, that it is a performance-enhancing substance, and she should be stricken, taken out of the games. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, as you might expect, there's a lot of... You know, people, admittedly, they're competitors, but they're extremely unhappy about this because, you know, they believe that this was, this is completely and totally contrary to the Olympic rules in that you're not allowed to have these substances. She's got the substance in her system, period. 855-616-1620. Should she be allowed to compete? We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, and just so everybody's clear, I don't think there's any dispute that this 15-year-old Russian figure skater tested positive for this heart medication that's been banned since 2014. Okay, there's, so there, there's no argument that she had the banned substance in her system. Their, their explanation is, well, she didn't take it herself. Um, she, If it was there, it was inadvertent because Grandpa takes it, and, and maybe Grandpa drank out of a glass that she subsequently drank out of, and it wasn't washed, and there was some saliva. So, oh, oh imagine our surprise. Well, I, I mean, look, one of our texters says, hey, if you buy that, you know, do you want to buy the home bridge? You know, which is, I, I think, a fair thing. It sounds ridiculous on its face, but it, it still it doesn't make any difference she's got the performance enhancing drug in her system the rules say you know if if you have this you are to to be you know tossed out 
how can you allow her to continue to compete? Um, one of our listeners, Laura from Las Vegas, says, Jeff, it's ridiculous and not fair to all the other skaters. The Russians are just cheaters. I have already watched less of the Olympics, and now this has basically turned me off for the remaining games. Um, Jeff, I seem to remember a star U.S. Olympian getting disqualified from the Summer Olympics when it found out she had marijuana in her system. So you're telling me if instead of telling the truth and admit to openly smoking the substance, all she had to do or say was that she might have accidentally consumed a marijuana edible instead, the Olympics would have let her compete? Um, As you said, no, it shouldn't matter how the substance got into their system. Disqualify her. See you again in four years. Yeah, I I guess, you know, that's the the whole thing. Jeff, she should be banned. She has to know to watch herself leading up to this. Um, And, you know, who who shares a a glass of water with Grandpa? You would think that you could have your own glass. Well, it's... All right. And, and my, my sense is that this is complete and total BS, you know, period. It's kind of like, okay, let, let's figure this sort of, of, of stuff out. One of our texters says, it's like claiming you got pregnant because, you know, you were in a hot tub that, that somebody else might have used, you know, a day or two before. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, she should not be allowed to compete. The illegal substance was in her system. I don't care how it got there. Rules are rules. Totally unfair to the other skaters. I might not watch any more Olympic skating this year. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it. Jeff, I realize I am much older and not as capable an athlete as these young skaters, but in my opinion, they should just walk out of the games. Um, Jeff, come on. The Russians have been cheating for decades when it comes to the Olympics. Olympics. Jeff, no, we live in an age where no one is held accountable and there are no consequences for people's actions. It's only going to get worse. Well, I, I think, you know, that's that's the whole idea. But the problem is, um, what's what's going on with the integrity of the sport? And the answer is that there's absolutely nothing. You've got the International Olympic Committee and some of these different regulatory agents who are clearly just terrified of, of the Russians and, oh, isn't this terrible? How could you disqualify this 15-year-old girl? Well, you disqualify the 15-year-old girl the same reason you disqualify the 22-year-old girl or the 25-year-old guy if they tested positive for a performance-enhancing substance. But I guess... Different rules apply, and you wonder why nobody takes the Olympics seriously anymore. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. You can contact them at 920 921-3800 or visit PellaWI.com to learn about the Pella Promise and to set up a free consultation. That's Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Pella now, pay later. All right. We, We all know that flying on airplanes over the last several years well it, it's become just a lot more difficult Let, let's you know back in the day back in the day there, there used to be a certain cachet about flying on on airlines and things but but that's that's long gone because of the economic challenges you now have planes that are are configured so they cram just as many people as they possibly can into them because of what happened and the disruptions to the airline industry because of the pandemic there's fewer flights so what's happening is the the planes are are more crowded because of covid restrictions they've cut back on a lot of the different things that they offer on the planes 
And now you have people that are tense because there's the mask rules and things like that. I'm this guy that thinks it's way past time for Joe Biden to drop the mask mandates on airplanes and in airports. Let's just talk about airports for a second. I mean, when when you can sit essentially maskless with 70,000 people at the Super Bowl, when you can walk through, I don't know, crowded concourses in, in shopping malls and things like that, does it really make any sense to require people to continue to wear masks in airport? But that's a discussion for, for another day. The rules right now say that you have to wear a mask in an airport. They say that you have to wear a mask while you're on the airplane. And I, I don't know that Biden really has any sense of, of getting rid of that. He continues to be one of the handful of people in the country that continues to say, well, we, we've got to wear masks pretty much everywhere we go but that's okay that that's the policy has and you know that going in if you want to hop on an airplane if you want to jump on a jet right now in this country you know that you've got to wear a mask okay so people get frustrated with that but that's still the rules and if you don't want to wear a mask on a plane well drive (laughs) i guess that that's sort of my philosophy of this but what you've been finding is that people are are just on their last nerve and more and more people are acting up and they're fighting with flight attendants over these rules and stuff which aren't the flight attendants rules in the first place so the the latest story is that on sunday an american airlines flight from los angeles to washington dc which is a long flight had to make a rapid emergency landing in Kansas City after an unruly passenger tried to break into the cockpit and attempted to open an exit door. How about that? Um, what happened is they, they, you know, that they were able to subdue him between the flight attendants and a couple other passengers. Um, they, they jumped on the guy. They intervened. They they stopped him from getting into the the cockpit, and ultimately, you know, all's well that ends well. But this is just the latest in a series of stories where you have out-of-control passengers. Now, I don't know what was that set this guy off, and I'm not suggesting it was necessarily mask rules, but the mask rules set some people off as well. And you're having these stories time after time after time, which puts the flight crew in danger, puts the pilots in danger, and it puts the other passengers in danger. So here's the deal. The CEO of Delta Airlines is saying, look, this is what we want to do. We want to create a national no-fly list for problematic passengers. Now, you might say, well, Jeff, isn't there a no-fly list? Well, the the federal government maintains a, a no-fly list of of suspected terrorists. So that, that's that's completely different, and, and they've had that since 9-11. So if you're on the federal government's no-fly list, it's because they, they, they think you are a security risk. This is completely different. This is people who have engaged in disorderly conduct on, on airplanes. Now, each individual airline maintains its own no-fly list. For example, Delta has about 1,600 people that are are banned from flying on Delta Airlines because of misconduct that they've engaged in on the planes. So that that's that that's all well and good, but there's no national list. So let's say that you've created an incident, you've been removed forcibly from the plane on Delta. There's no national list which stops you from booking a flight on Southwest or United or American or whatever. There's no national list that 
reflects people who've been banned on the individual airlines. So you have somebody who could have created a disturbance on Delta who's able to get on the plane at American. So the Delta CEO is saying, look, this is what we need a national list. Last year, the FAA conducted more than a thousand investigations of unruly passengers. This this is getting worse, not better. And the secretary of the Department of Transportation is now saying, well, you know, we, we know that airlines have their own internal no-fly lists, but, you know, maybe we, we have to take a look at putting out this national list. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. You get tossed off a Delta flight because, I don't know, you tried to storm the cockpit. Should you be able to book a flight on Southwest or United or American three days later, or does a national no-fly list make sense? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I'm a flight crew on one of the majors, major airlines, and I totally agree with the Delta CEO on this one. If you cut up on one airline, it makes no sense that you can then book a ticket and then get another airline to, to again, continue to cut up. That, that just makes no sense. So I, I agree. Well, you ban from one, you ban from all. Right, I, I guess, and Lamar, thanks for the call. And I guess, I guess, I, I should break this down because I think there, there, there's two things. First of all, airlines can maintain their own no-fly lists, and, and airlines have broad discretion as to you know what, why they're going to decide that they they don't want you on the plane. And I think just like any business has the right to refuse service as long as it's not for an illegal reason, they they, they could do that. First of all, I think that airlines should be circulating those lists to other airlines. So I think if, for example, somebody has been tossed off of of a Delta flight because they've been drunk and unruly or whatever, I think that American and United and Southwest and Spirit and Frontier and all these other airlines should have access to that information so they can make a decision as to whether or not they want to refuse service as well. I mean, I think that that just makes sense. Then there's the second thing, and this is, I guess, what the Delta CEO is saying to the government. He's saying, look, you know, what we also need to do, besides our own individual lists, is there needs to be a a national list for people who are convicted of an onboard disruption. So actually, these would be people that were were convicted of of something, not just, hey, the guy lipped off to the flight attendant or, you know, didn't put the mask on in a timely fashion. But this would be people who were actually convicted of an onboard flight uh, disruption that they would be on this national no-fly list. And and I guess I, I agree with both. I think the airline should share that information of the people that they've tossed off and then allow the different airlines to decide whether that's a basis to deny service. But if you have been, in fact, convicted of, of some airline disruption, whether it's misdemeanor or whatever, I don't care. I think that, you know, one of the, the prices of poker is that you lose your ability to, to fly on planes. And candidly, I guess my particular position on this is if I'm if I'm sitting on a flight and I'm I'm flying from Milwaukee to Las Vegas or, or whatever, I don't want a guy two rows behind me who has 
I don't know, been convicted of storming a cockpit, you know, to, to be on, on that plane, or a guy who has punched out a, a flight attendant who has gotten in a fight. I think it's just a matter of public safety. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, there should be a master list. I don't know about whether or not there should be a permanent ban, um, but... I, you know, I'm, to me, I, I have no problem with this at all. I, you know, if you get convicted in particular of, of misconduct on an airplane, boom, you lose, at least in my opinion, you should lose your right to fly. And the, the alternative is take the train or, or drive. Jeff, somebody who dangerously disrupts a flight is a form of a terrorist. So why not just put them on the existing no-fly terror list? They belong there just as much. Well, I think you have to make a distinction as to why it is that you're you're telling people that they can't fly is it because you think that they're a danger to the country or is it because they've got a conviction um jeff former airline pilot now absolutely not what would make that list more effective than a TSA list? This just seems more like a shaming list idea. If airlines can't manage the passengers, they should call the police and just trust the outcome. Boy, I, I find it interesting that that's coming from the perspective of, of a pilot. Um, I, I guess my, my response is airlines... You know, airlines need help in, in doing this. And if you've got some, I mean, look, if, if I'm United Airlines, for example, and somebody tries to storm a cockpit on on my thing, and then I subsequently find out, oh, this guy's banned by Delta, and he's banned by Southwest because he's done similar things in the past, my reaction is going to be, why the heck didn't we know about it? Because if, if we knew that he was inclined to do this stuff, there's no way that he would have sold, we would have sold him that particular ticket. I see no problem at all with this. Jeff, I think the no-fly list would make common sense. Well, I would think it would make common sense as well. Jeff, they're a security risk, even if it's not national security. They're putting every person on those planes in jeopardy. I would also guess that when they start comparing their lists, there will be some overlap. Unruly on Delta, also banned on United Etc. Yeah, I think that there's a question of that as well. Bottom line is there's push from the airline industry institutionally to, to do this. And I see absolutely no reason, number one, why that information isn't shared, just like, you know, banks share credit information. You have credit ratings. Okay, if you, if you default on your car loan and you have you know you you haven't paid all sorts of bills okay there, there's a national credit agency that gets reported to the national credit agency so to somebody else thinking about extending you credit or giving you a loan for something they go check your records and they say okay wait a second you know we this guy didn't pay this bill and he's got this bill that hasn't been paid and this bill that hasn't been paid and they had to cancel this and so they make a decision that they're not going to extend credit isn't this at least as important as that when it comes to safety. So, yes, there should be a clearinghouse where airlines share the industry. And, yes, for people who are convicted of this, they should be on a national registry because if you're going to storm the cockpit, I'm sorry, if you've done that over the weekend on a flight from L.A. to D.C., I don't want you sitting two rows behind me when I'm flying from Milwaukee to Las Vegas. Period. Case closed. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
Wondering what 2022 will have in store? Well, join WTMJ day after tomorrow, this Thursday, February 17th, for a day-long broadcast on the topics that impact your everyday life. Politics, the economy, that happens to be my segment, health, and more. Big issues from big names on the biggest stick in the state. It's WTMJ 2022 taking place this Thursday, February 17th, 9 in the morning till 6 p.m. Presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by the Bartolotta Restaurants. Find more information at WTMJ.com. All right, you know, it is interesting to me that there is an election. This is, of course, an election year, and... A lot of the media attention in the U.S. Senate race has been focused on the incumbent Senator Ron Johnson for, for a lot of reasons, and, and some of the attention that Johnson gets is brought on by himself. And I know that there's some people out there who say, well, there, there's just uh, Johnson's going to lose. And I, I keep saying no, because one of the things that has happened so far is the people that are running against him have gotten pretty much a, a free pass from the the media in general. First of all, there's like four or five or six candidates running, so you're not getting a lot of focus. Secondly, because there's been all the controversy involving Johnson, it's on his issues, and nobody's taking a real hard look at where some of these candidates are. And as we discussed a couple weeks ago, just for the people of Wisconsin to know, the people that are, are running against Ron Johnson are way, 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 way to the left of Joe Biden. And we're talking about some that are kind of out there on, on the kook fringe, but there really hasn't been much analysis of, of where they are. Now, interesting, in today's Journal Sentinel, there's a column by you know, Dan Bice, who's focused a lot on the Republicans, and credit where credit is due. He's finally starting to say something that a number of us have been saying for quite a while and, and give some scrutiny to some of the things that are going on. For example, Mandela Barnes, who is the lieutenant governor, who some people believe is the leading candidate to win the Democratic nomination, starting to focus on some of the wacky, and there's no question, wacky positions that Mandela Barnes has taken. For example, and he's trying to walk these things back, but he's trying to walk them back because he understands where this stuff polls. For example, abolish ICE. Um, you know, there's, you know, he's on, he's on Reddit and this vice has the story, um, with a shirt, um, calling for the eradication of ice. The same picture is on, um, Twitter. Um, apparently this is the, this is the, you know, Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin who at least when it suits his purposes is out there saying that he's in favor of getting rid of ice. Now, when they ask him about that, it's like, well, okay, I understand I was, you know, talking about this and wearing the shirt, but I'm not part of the Abolish Ice movement, which doesn't necessarily mean that you don't agree that you want to abolish ice, which is there. So you've got Mandela Barnes out with that particular situation. Then you've got the whole issue of defund the police. And, you know, Barnes has gotten endorsements from many, many national groups that are based around the whole defund the police organization. So he's spoken at a lot of these different groups. Um, he sent out tweets that suggest as recently as July of 2020 that he, well, quote, defunding the police only dreams of being as radical as a Donald Trump pardon. So it's clear 
that when it suits his purposes, whether it's abolishing ICE or defunding the police, this is where the guy is. Now, again, these ideas do not poll well in 2022. I mean, defunding the police has turned out to be a disaster, both politically and in the real world. Abolishing ICE is just kooky. It's just flat-out kooky. Now, I understand it might be a dream of the far left, but this is not where Wisconsin is. And Mandela Barnes pollsters are probably telling him that, so you're trying to walk all this stuff back. I guess my point in bringing this up is whether it's abolishing ICE, defunding the police, um, putting in you know massive wealth taxes, you have these candidates who are running for Senate who are way, way, way to the left of Biden. They're arguably way to the left of Tammy Baldwin. This is the square. Wad and that sort of stuff, and that's what a lot of these candidates embrace. Whoever ultimately gets the nomination is going to have to defend these positions, and that's one of the reasons why I say for people who count out Ron Johnson, you do that at your own expense. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I think it is fair to say that when it comes to tough on crime, if you were to look up the definition of, of Tony Evers, the current governor of the state of Wisconsin, in the dictionary, you, you would not find him listed under the area of, of tough on, on crime. Matter of fact, I think is a general rule, and you saw that with what happened in Kenosha, etc. Um, Evers doesn't embrace crime, but he doesn't want to confront it and deal with the things that you really need to deal with. It's just, it's not his issue. He wants it to go away. It does not appeal to some of his constituents who will be outraged that if you really crack down on criminal behavior, what's going to happen is that means that you're going to probably have to build more prisons and you're going to have to hold people accountable and that would put Evers at odds with some of his core constituencies. So he doesn't want to do that. So the bottom line is, as long as he is is the governor, whether it's 11 months or whether it's 11 months and four years, you're, you're, you're not going to get tough on crime legislation through the legislature as lo- enacted into law as long as Evers has his veto pen because he's not going to do it. It's not who he is. It's not what his orientation is, which doesn't mean, though, that there's not ways that you can work around Evers until he is tossed out of office. And there's something going on in the legislature today, which is something that, first of all, I think it's good politics, but most importantly, I think it is good policy. Now, over the course of the last, I don't know, couple months, we've talked a lot in Wisconsin about the appalling situation with with bail. And it it really came to a head with the the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre. We had the six people dead and uh, the dozens and dozens that were injured by a guy who was out on bail, and he shouldn't have been. Now, we've gone over this ground before. John Chisholm, the district attorney in Milwaukee County, who travels nationally and receives awards and plaudits for being this progressive district attorney who goes out of his way to try to avoid holding people accountable. Well, all right. 
Chisholm, his defense was he tried to he threw some young prosecutor under a bus. And the point that I was making, and it's a point I've been making for years now, is this this was not a one-off. The case with Daryl Brooks and the Waukesha Christmas Parade thing it was not a unique thing. This is part of an ongoing pattern. It just never got any attention. Now, one of the things that is happening is whenever we have these violent criminals who are caught, at least now, people are starting to focus on the fact that they're, they're out on bail. And I think a lot of people are just shocked at the number of folks who are caught committing very, very serious crimes are out on ridiculously low bails. Now, one of the good things, and I've been trying to highlight this over the last couple of weeks, is I think a number of the judges have just kind of woke awoken and and I don't mean that in the woke sense, but they recognized that they were kind of played by the district attorney's office and the, the public defender's office into setting these ridiculously low bails. And I know some of the judges are starting to feel the heat because they don't like to hear their names on the radio or on television news or in the newspaper. You know, hey, this was this stupid low bail that they set because the DA's office agreed to it and the defender's office agreed to it. So you let this guy out. Now you've got people that are dead or whatever because of it. So one of the things you're starting to see is judges are starting to set higher bail. I mean, a classic example of that is the two women who shot the George Webb employee a couple weeks ago. Point, well, it, it, he was one of them knocked him down, the other one shot him in the face. They're being held right now on a hundred thousand dollars bail. I firmly believe that if that crime had happened a month and a half ago, no way the bail would have been anything close to that. So some of the judges are, in fact, responding. But that doesn't mean we don't need to do more. So here's the deal. Under, I come, I'm a product of the, the federal system, and here's how bail works in the federal system. When you set bail, you consider two things. First of all, is the person a flight risk? Will they show up? And secondly, is the person a danger to the community? Which is, are they likely to, even if they, they might show up, are they likely to commit other crimes while they are out on bail? And, and that's always what the, the the question is. And one of the things that is allowed in the federal system is if you can demonstrate that there's no conditions of release which will assure that the person is going to show up or assure that you know they're not going to commit other crimes, if you can demonstrate that, then they're just held without bail. And it, it's a system that I think works extremely well. Well, in, in Wisconsin, doesn't really operate like that. According to the state constitution, um, judges can't impose cash bail to prevent future crimes, only to ensure that defendants appear in court. They can add conditions to the bail that address public safety concerns, but those aren't worth the paper they're written on. How many times have we seen the case where you've got the guy who's um, charged with domestic abuse? who's beaten up his wife or beaten up his girlfriend and threatened to kill her, and then they, they let him out on $250 bail, and then what happens? And But they're told, don't have any contact. Don't have any contact with the girlfriend. Don't have any contact with the ex-wife. And then the ex-wife ends up dead three days later because that don't have contact, it, it's, just, it, it's just a joke. So right now there is... The state assembly is going to be voting on a measure today which does not need the approval of Tony Evers. It is, in fact, a constitutional amendment which would allow and actually require the courts to consider, when setting bail, 
alleged violent offenders. Now, it just applies to violent offenders right now. Not all offenders. Violent offenders. So if you're charged with a crime of violence in determining whether or not you should be released on bail and what that bail would be, the courts would be required to consider the nature of the charge, the criminal record of the accused, the risk they pose to public safety, which I think comes from the criminal record, as well as the need to prevent the intimidation of witnesses in determining bail amounts. So in other words, it's not just a question of flight risk. It's also a question of danger to the community. And by going at this from a constitutional amendment standpoint, and of course it would need to be passed by two consecutive sessions of the legislature, you don't have to go through Tony Evers, who would probably be appalled by this, unless he thinks he needs to support it because he needs to get elected in November, and then it would go to the, the public to vote for it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where do I sign up? A constitutional amendment to change the considerations for bail. Now, part of the problem with this is, as long as you've got district attorneys like John Chisholm, they will try to find ways to work around it. But at least this would give judges the right to take a look at factors like, oh, we've got somebody who's charged with, I don't know, fleeing the police and smashing into a car and, you know, hitting other people. Maybe we can consider the likelihood that if we let them out on bail, they're going to do the same thing again. 855-616-1620, where do I sign up to vote for this constitutional amendment? What do you think? We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I I love it. One of our texters, and we have people out there who I I think just disagree to be disagreeable. And and that's okay. That's fine. This this is Minority Report. You know, the the Tom Cruise movie where they used to arrest people before they committed crimes? No, this is is what many states do, and it's what the federal government has done for the longest time. You, You look at past indicators to determine what is likely to happen in the future. And then you use that as part of your bail determination, as opposed to just stupidly assuming that some guy with a lengthy criminal record should be released on a crime of violence on a $3,000 bond that they pay for with their and their wife's stimulus payments and then be surprised when they go out and they commit other crimes. At some point in time, you have to focus, I think, on, on public safety and doing the same thing over and over again like we have been doing for years, which is taking people with extensive criminal records accused of serious crimes, putting them back out on the street to commit other crimes, all that does is put people at risk. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? So, obviously, I'm not a resident of Wisconsin, but I have family and friends that live here, and I work most of my day here. Um, I completely support it, and I think most of the people, if not all, that I know here would support it as well. It's just gone on too long. It's just it's out of control, and... I, I don't even know the law in Illinois. I mean, when you said the ruling on bails, I was shocked to say, to know that safety wasn't a component of it in your state. And I, I should know, I guess, in my state, too, because I don't know that either. But um, bails being yeah. low, I mean, it's just, I, it's just not a good idea. 
Well, no, th- thanks for call. And, and, and I, you see, Mike, one of the things that they've done, this was a broader proposal originally, but they narrowed it down to people who are accused of, of committing crimes of violence. So this, this still isn't going to apply to car thieves, for example, because that's not a crime of violence. Now, it would apply to the car thief who's engaging in the reckless driving, who runs through the red light and hits and kills somebody. But, but as a general rule, it, it's a much more narrow sort of approach. And again, I, I at some point in time, I, I think what, what's happened is we, we stick our heads in the sand because we have certain people who are just afraid to hold other people accountable. And, and the bottom line is, and you talk to anybody in law enforcement, and you talk to at least most judges, and if you put them under a lie detector test, they know where the problems are. See, the here, here's the reality. The most, most people out there are are on honest law abiding citizens. I mean for most people you never have any contact with people who are in the criminal justice system. I mean it's seriously, you know, most people if, if they have a contact with a police officer, it's because they, they got stopped for speeding or they had an expired license plate or something like that. That's that's how most people interact with police officers. And then there's that other element and i don't know you know what percentage of it is 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 it one percent is it two percent is it three percent i i don't know but it's it's people who are constantly in trouble who whether they seek out trouble whether they have the impulse control of fruit flies but whatever and and you can just tell that with the judges the judges and and they know you you look at somebody's record you say okay this is the 12th time that this guy has been arrested or this gal has been arrested generally speaking it's a progressively more serious set of crimes so i mean how, how many more domestic violence cases are we going to have that start out as a beating and then they're released on some ridiculously low bail it's completely and totally predictable that they're going to not pay attention to the no contact order and show up and kill the wife or kill the girlfriend or whatever or and and we just and you know it you know it is going to happen so this at least requires the judges to consider that as a factor. It also then holds them accountable because people just can't you know, wash their hands and say, well, yes, we, we understood that this was troubling, but we're, you know, we, we decided that there was just nothing that we could do because the guys all were, already showed up for all his court appearances. And so we, we don't want to predict the fact that just because they've committed eight crimes of violence, that as soon as they get out on bail, they're going to predict, create a ninth crime of violence. But you know darn well that that's what's going to happen. Craig and Horicon. Craig, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hey, thank you for taking my call because yes, sir. in this kind of case, you are so much more educated than than your audience. As a former DA, could you please help us understand, like, are all criminals allowed a bail, even if they're caught in the act? Why are they considered alleged? If, if you're caught in the act, uh, you know, okay, you know, I understand you're allowed a fair trial, but that, that, that's all you're allowed is a fair trial. If you're caught in the act, if I robbed the bank and you caught me red-handed, I was robbing the bank. There's well, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Can well, you Craig, tell let me, me why? Sure. 
Well, sure. Th- okay, thanks for the call. I mean, sure, sure. No, th- thanks for the call, Craig. Let, let me break this down. First of all, in this country, there is a presumption of innocence. People are innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The guy responsible for all those deaths in the, um, the, the Waukesha Christmas Parade, I mean, he's entered a not guilty plea, and he has a presumption of innocence, even though... You know, I, I think we, we all know that he is guilty as you know what. But in the eyes of the law, not in the court of public opinion, where we get to express our opinions, but in the eyes of the law, you know, he's considered to be innocent until proven guilty. And so that's the presumption that, that attaches. And, and I think that's an important presumption that's had. But having said that, to kind of address your point, it doesn't mean necessarily that justice is deaf, blind, and dumb. And by that I mean in setting bail, one of the things, and this is traces back to the federal system as well, one of the things that you should be able to do is determine the, the strength of, of the case. You know, because how strong is the case? Because candidly, that's something to me that decides whether or not somebody, that's a factor in whether somebody is likely to appear. If you have somebody who's accused of a crime but... It's the, the prosecution has taken a flyer. It's there's not strong evidence for whatever reason. Okay, that person is much more likely, perhaps, to show up to vindicate themselves than the person who is caught red-handed killing six people with a car and injuring dozens more. Who you know, if he gets out on bail, he's going to be gone. He, at least he's going to try to run because there's no incentive for him. If you go through the trial, the trial is just essentially a slow guilty plea. So you go through the trial, you're, you're convicted, and then you're put in prison for life anyways. So to, to that extent, the strength of the evidence determines, I, I think, Right now, a judge can consider the strength of the evidence in determining whether or not somebody is a flight risk. To me, it should also be whether or not somebody is a danger to the community as well. Bottom line is, we have too many people who are released on too low bail, and this has been going on for quite a while, who are committing too many crimes. And at some point in time, decent law-abiding citizens need to stand up and say, look, you know, we're... We're not talking about you know locking everybody up forever while they're waiting for trials, uh, but what we are saying is that for people who have demonstrated dangerousness, well, just to send them back out on the street being told not to do it again, well, that's not working, and we are creating a nation, a country, and a state of victims. And it's time to say enough is enough. This is a modest step in that direction. Like I say, I, I hope the legislature passes it because I'm ready to vote for this anytime. This is Jeff Wagner, back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. As long as we're talking about the court system, this is a weird story. For the last week and a half, Sarah Palin's libel defamation suit against the New York Times has been going on in federal court. The jury, She claims that the New York Times libeled her with an editorial. The New York Times defense is, we were wrong, we were sloppy, we were mistaken, 
but she's a public figure, and you can't prove that we acted with reckless disregard for the truth, which is is the standard. As I've talked about before, I, I, I never thought Sarah Palin was going to win the case, but it does open up this entire discussion, and this case is going to go up on appeal, and the current Supreme Court is going to look and decide whether or not previous rulings essentially making it impossible to sue media outlets when they defame public figures, whether that law still makes sense. So th- that's where this is going. But anyhow, the jury is out deliberating this. Yesterday, and this is just bizarre, the federal judge announced while the ju- jury was deliberating that he was going to dismiss the case. He said, I-, I don't think that she's proven you know, the malice standard that she needs to prove, so I- I'm going to dismiss it. But I'm going to let the jury continue deliberating. And, and this-, this is just bizarre because it's not that the judge doesn't have the right to dismiss it, but to dismiss the case, or at least to say he's going to dismiss it before the jury even returns a verdict. I'm not saying it's unheard of. I'm just saying that it's certainly extraordinary. What you would typically do is allow the jury to reach its verdict. Then you could say, no, I, I don't think this is supported by the evidence, and then you toss it out. But to say in advance that you're going to kick the case. And I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong, because the judge says, well, you know, I, I'm just applying the law now. Maybe maybe the law's standards will, will change as a result of this case and things like that, and I don't think she met her burden of proof. That's a reasonable position. But to say before the jury comes back and decides, and then to allow the jury to continue deliberating, again, it's, it's just bizarre. The New York Times, um, I I think they're they're going to be happy that they won the case, but they shouldn't necessarily be because their defense was, okay, we we were sloppy, we got it wrong, uh, but we we didn't intend actual malice. Hmm. That's not a very high standard. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Since the, the, the Super Bowl ads were decidedly targeted I, I think at millennials you know it, it was really it was kind of a passing of the torch for years and years the thing was okay all, all these ads are centered around stuff that appeals to the baby boomers not so much anymore I, I think it was definitely the the millennial showcase you know people from the 80s and the 90s uh, who, who were really you know moving forward and that that's that's all well and good as, as far as long as we're talking about millennials I think you can make an argument that there was not a more popular, an arguably significant television show in the 80s and 90s than than the Bill Cosby show. The Cosby show, which ran from 84 until 92, which for many years was the the number one show. I mean, it it was a a very, very big deal, and it received all sorts of awards and accolades and praise from for the way it, it portrayed um, the, the black experience, and it was, I mean, and, and here you had a situation where we, we weren't portraying, you know, black people as drug dealers or things like that. You know, it wasn't like it was a Sanford and Son type of TV show where it, it showed, you know, a, a, a character like Red Fox who was Fred Sanford or working in a junkyard. It wasn't a show like Good Times, which was very good, but, you know, Good Times, you know, uh, was, was set in a, a Chicago project, I believe. You know, so it, it depicted 
you know, those shows depicted a certain type of the, the black experience, but the Cosby show portrayed him as a doctor and his, you know, wife is a very successful person. And, and it was just, it was a different sort of show that I, I think, you know, a lot of people, both white and black and brown, r- related to. Very, very popular show. Well, of course, we, we all know that, you know, Bill Cosby, it appears, had, had feet of clay. And for the longest time, you know, Bill Cosby, whatever the public image was, and I, I always say this, of the, in, in all the years I've been doing the show, now I don't do... I don't do a lot of celebrity interviews, never really have. It, it's not what my show is all about. But occasionally we'll do that. And I remember a number of years ago, before all the scandal involving Bill Cosby, uh, he was coming to Milwaukee to do like his one-person show or whatever. And I can remember we, we did about a 15-minute interview, and he was thoroughly charming. I, I mean, sometimes you do these celebrity interviews, and the people are really they can be difficult. I, I think that would be a fair way to say. You know, Bill Cosby was just great. It was. I, I still remember this. I, you know, I was kind of kidding around with him. I asked him if he'd do like fat, the Fat Albert thing. Hey, hey, hey! And you know, he did. He was. He was very, very gracious. And I thought, oh, this kind of this guy is a nice guy. But that that's sort of the image that you had. Now we all know that there's this other side of Bill Cosby that, that's out there. Th- this is getting more scrutiny because. I think if people haven't been following this, you know, he was convicted. Subsequently, his convictions were overturned based on procedural grounds, allegations that uh, statements he made in a civil case were then used against him in a criminal case. So he's out of jail, but it doesn't change the underlying conduct. Showtime right now is running this this series. It's called, um, that examines... The, the Cosby Show, and it, I think it's called, you know, We Need to Talk About Cosby. And it's examining, I don't know, the, the again, the Bill Cosby, the man, the myth, what is the legacy of the show? Now, it's interesting to me because um, reruns of his show were were essentially pulled in 2014 i mean this his show the cosby show used to be used to be all over tv maybe maybe not quite like seinfeld and friends but it used to be all over tv i mean there was a point in time where you you couldn't turn on daytime tv or one of the you know blocks on some of the channels that rerun you know old sitcoms without seeing the, the cosby show um reruns of the series were generally pulled in 2014 after accusations against him you know came forward but having said that all right now in 2022 you can find the Cosby show not like you can find friends not like you can find Seinfeld not like you can find Gilligan's Island but um, it, it airs on basic cables TV one so you can see that if you happen to have access to that Amazon Prime streams it to prime members and there's a couple other platforms that are out there that allow people to watch the cosby show as well now you know the the cosby show uh, putting aside you know whatever bill cosby was doing on his own the cosby show i I think created a number of role models you had a, a number of actors and actresses besides bill cosby who you know went on to be very very successful and and in general if you view the show, I, I think you know a lot of people just have very fond memories of it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's a really provocative article that caught my attention in the Los Angeles Times talking about the Cosby Show 
and the cancel culture and all the Cosby show meant to lots of people when they were growing up. So here is, I guess, what I would like to discuss with you. Because we now know what we know about Bill Cosby, does that mean that show should not air? Or is it a situation where we should be able to divorce whatever feelings we have about Bill Cosby from the show? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need to cancel the Cosby show? What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. And if you were a fan of the Cosby show in the 80s and 90s, I would be particularly interested in talking to you. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Hmm. What's this? Wow. Hey, are you seeing this? What? What's going on? Hey, does anybody know what this is all about? Our phones are great, but a notification only tells you part of the story. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Breaking news from the White House this afternoon. We're getting more information in Milwaukee County. The only place for in-depth coverage of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the world. News Radio WTMJ. Hey, Milwaukee nonprofits, do you need to raise funds for your organization, your church group, your high school, or your sports team? Well, you can the fast and fun way by running a concession stand at American Family Field this summer. Milwaukee Sports Service and the Milwaukee Brewers helped hundreds of nonprofits raise over $1.5 million just last season alone. It's easy, it's fun, it's profitable. Earn a percentage of your sales and keep all your tips. The more games you work, the more money you make. So sign up now. Stands are filling up fast. Go to baseball nonprofit. Com. That's one word, baseballnonprofit.com. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's this new um, series on Showtime, which is, it, it's called, we, we Need to Talk About Bill Cosby. And, it, and it's talking about the Cosby legacy um, right now, the Cosby Show, which was huge from 84 to 92, is off of most TV stations. Uh, TV One, which is a national cable network, has it. You can watch episodes on Amazon Prime. But other than that, it's, it's not getting anywhere near the exposure that other shows do. So my question is, is that fair? Is it time to bring back the, the Cosby Show? And what's the standard? I mean... For example, Michael Richards, the character who plays Kramer on Seinfeld, well, he had a, a really high-profile blow-up a few years back, remember, and he was using all sorts of language and inappropriate stuff and all. I mean, But yet Seinfeld, you can't turn on the TV day or night without seeing you know, Seinfeld, and everybody laughs at the Kramer character and stuff. Uh, all right, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Tammy in Waukesha. Hi, Tammy. Hello. What do you think? How are you? I'm good. I think the Cosby Show. That I love the Cosby Show. I I would love to watch it with my children. Um, and Bill Cosby himself. I am close to somebody who um, attended the Playboy Mansion parties while he was there, and she said he could have been with anyone he wanted to be with. The ladies were very enamored with him. Mm-hmm. And um, so. <laughs> Maybe he had a dark side to him. I don't know. But I think that actors and musicians sometimes are framed. Well, yeah, but I I guess the question, I mean, but I guess the the question is, I mean, let's assume for the sake of argument that he he did, 
in some form or fashion, you know, what, what he's accused of. In, in, is that a basis for taking his show off the air, do you think, or no? In my opinion, no. There's some, there's room for doubt. Now, granted, anyone who is a, an offender um, should be dealt with and have consequences. But I, I'm doubtful of okay. um, the accusations. Okay, good. No, thank, thanks and for the call, Tammy. I, no, I appreciate it. I, I, I'm, I'm less doubtful of that. But I guess the, the bigger question is how far does the cancel culture go? I was just looking up, you know, some of some some other performers who've gotten in trouble with the law. You know, Eminem, who was, you know, the you know one of the, the stars of the Super Bowl halftime show. Well, he's been, you know, arrested for assault, possession of concealed weapons. He was sentenced. He was put on probation. And, you know, he, he, he's out there, you know, rapping at the Super Bowl halftime show. Snoop Dogg was arrested several times on charges of felony drug possession and gun possession. He was once arrested for murder, but he was acquitted. But, you know, Snoop Dogg was the headline. Robert Downey Jr., I mean, my my gosh, Robert Downey John Downey Jr. was arrested multiple times in the late '90s um, for various problems. He's the he's the star of the he's Iron Man for goodness sakes. He's Sherlock Holmes. You get all that stuff going on. I guess I, I wonder where we you know where where we end up drawing the line. Kevin in Kenosha. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Hi, hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think it should. I think it should be canceled. I mean, he was found guilty in a court of law for drugging women and having his way with women. He's found guilty on that. You know, here we're tearing statues down that are years old, monuments down for people that had slaves. You know, and those people—that's the way it was back then. They had slaves, and we should learn by our history. Not to say that it was right, but you know what? These people that Robert E. Lee—he wasn't found guilty of anything. You know, everybody had slaves back then. They're tearing statues down. But no, but what Bill Cosby didn't found guilty of was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, no, it, it is. No, th- thanks for call. I mean, it it, it was, and I, I'm not I'm I'm not defending Bill Cosby here. At this, I guess at the same time, and, and this is why it's so difficult. And we we understand a lot of these performers. Um, you know, have have feet of clay. I mean, how many of these examples where there, there's this there's this public image that's been cultivated about a, a particular an athlete, a performer, whatever, and you, you have armies of public uh, relations people, and they, they cultivate this certain image, and then then it turns out that that's just an image, and it doesn't necessarily reflect the the reality of what's going on. I mean, Tiger Woods is a classic example of that. Tiger Woods, arguably the greatest golfer who ever lived, and you had the, this image of him that was created of this, oh, he's this family guy, and he's got this beautiful model wife, and he's got these great kids, and as it turns out, you know, he's, he's just cheating on her, every chance he, he gets and I think it was kind of a, a surprise revelation to a lot of people that this image that had been cultivated wasn't what the real person was and, and you find that out a, a lot of times but the question becomes okay do we not cheer for Tiger Woods anymore I guess I, I look at this and, and say that see I think you have to be able to separate Bill Cosby the person from the the Cosby show, the characters. I think that show ha- has a lot to offer. I, I think it's it's a show that talks about positive role models, and I, I think it, it presents things in a very, very positive sort of fashion. And, and candidly, I, I think by pulling it off the air, you, you miss the good of this. And I, I think maybe you just assume that people aren't going to be able to separate the fact that, oh, this is Bill Cosby, the star, who went on to do, you know, who did 
who was convicted of doing, you know, really, really terrible things. But it, it separates that from the show itself. And I think that's that's where it's interesting to me where the cancel culture kind of comes in. Now, if these TV networks believe that we're not going to air it because nobody's going to watch it, well, that's just a business decision. But I don't believe that's the case. My guess is if you brought the Cosby show back, you would find an audience for it because it was good family entertainment, even though even though Bill Cosby I think wasn't necessarily in real life the guy that a lot of us believed he was. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, if you had guacamole at your Super Bowl party, I hope you enjoyed it because not going to be too much guacamole for the near future. If you haven't heard this story, avocados, which is, of course, the, the, the base ingredient in guacamole, the vast majority of avocados come from Mexico. About 10% of them are produced in California. Otherwise, it's an import. The United States has just shut down imports of avocados from Mexico. And so um, right now, whatever was like in the pipeline is going to be allowed to come through. But what they're saying is in a few days, the current inventory of avocados are going to be sold out and there's going to be nothing in almost any supermarket. Consumers will have very few products available and prices will rise drastically. So so what happened? Why is there an avocado shortage? Well, apparently there is an inspector, a USDA inspector, um, in, in Mexico, who, and there's certain rules as to where the avocados can come from. Apparently, that inspector says he was threatened by, I think they presume it's members of an avocado cartel or something, over some avocados that they weren't going to let come into the country because they were from a region where it's not allowed. So anyhow, the inspector says he was threatened. And so the USDA has responded by shutting down all avocado imports until... They can assure the safety of their inspectors and kind of get to the bottom of this so to make sure the inspectors keep working safely, which is all well and good. But I just I think it's interesting that you have a threat and the response is now we're going to just shut down all the imports. The USDA feels it's necessary to do it. That's fine. But if you go to the grocery store next week and you're looking to make guacamole or something for the NBA All-Star Game Party and you can't find avocados, well, or the avocados are crazy priced, well, it's because no more avocados coming into the country. So just, I guess, live with salsa would be the step. All right, when we come back, we're scheduled to talk to one of the biggest landlords in the Milwaukee area who's generated a lot of publicity. We're going to ask him some questions about what's going on. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Over the course of the last 18 months, we've talked a lot about some of the pandemic restrictions that were put in place, including a, a moratorium on evictions that went into effect in approximately March of 2020 that was not released until October of 2021, which meant in many cases you had landlords who were 
not permitted to evict tenants for failure to pay rent. They could evict them for other things. And so what happened is you had a lot of tenants that fell way, way, way behind in in their rent. And, you know, we, we talked about whether this was fair to the landlords. We've discussed this at great length. Well, now that the moratorium has ended, there are evictions that are starting. And in the Milwaukee area, there's one particular property management company that's getting all sorts of attention and we'll talk about whether it's fair or unfair or for beginning eviction processes and it's focused a lot on gee you know should they be allowed to do that or not that the company is Barada Properties Management and we're now joined by the owner of that Joe Barada. Uh, Mr. Barada good afternoon. Good afternoon Jeff how are you? I am well. Thank you for, for being with us. Just, just to start off, for, for people who don't know you or anything about you other than what they might have read in the paper, what, can you give me a little bit of, of your background, how you got started in the business, and, and how big your business has grown? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I'm originally from uh, Morocco. I came here when I was uh, 16 years old as an exchange student. I stayed with a fantastic family. And, uh, you know, I went to, to uh, South Milwaukee High School, uh, went to college, to Market University. I got my degree in engineering and, uh, you know, got married, kids, and I started, uh, and I got this idea of getting into uh, real estate. So I started with uh, eight family, uh, right off 76th Street right here on the northwest side of Milwaukee, which is still on till today. And I just, uh, you know, taught myself how to do repairs, uh, a number of toolbox, pickup truck, and and just one building at a time. And uh, and here we are. You know, the thing has grown. Uh, the business has grown. You know, uh, fast. And uh, but uh, I am still the same person, Jeff. You know, nothing has changed. I mean, <laughs> I love this city, Milwaukee. It's you know, and I'm, I want to do right by the city, of Milwaukee, and by the tenant. You know, and. Uh, uh, that's pretty much how it started, just one bit at a time. Right, and, and so for, for people who know, but your various companies, I mean, the, the numbers that I've seen say that, you know, through various companies that, you know, you can control, you, you, you probably have about, what, 8,000 rental units approximately or so in, in the area? That's correct, yeah. It's uh, close to 8,000 units. In okay. The, uh, city of Milwaukee and the scene and uh, some in Kenosha. I'm sorry, in uh, San Francisco and uh, and West Dallas. Now you've gotten a lot of attention over the course of of the last several weeks because your your companies started a, a series of of eviction actions um, against people. The, the story I'm looking at, the headline in the Journal Sentinel was nearly 800 evictions since January 1st. Let, let, let's talk about this. What, what was it that prompted the decision to start these eviction actions over the last month or two? Sure. I mean, the, num- the 800 plus numbers, that was that's literally a backlog of literally almost two years. I mean, we have in our company, we stopped the eviction way before the moratorium even started, you know, by choice. I mean, COVID, I understand it. A lot of people went through a lot of difficult times. So we decided to, you know, hold the evictions, uh, charge no late fees. We still today, we still don't charge the late fees. And uh, and we have not 
done anything. And now the moratorium literally ended back in, in August of 2021, and here we are six months later, and we have a lot of people who just no response, unresponsive, meaning we have tried, we sent them letters multiple times, certified letters, emails, text messages, knock on their door, post, you know, letters on their, you know, on their unit, no response. And it's, and even if people do some kind of effort, it's very little effort. I mean, this is the very, very last result that we, we hope that we had to do. And we just could not, you know, continue to do business like that. I mean, we have uh, hundreds of people apply with us every day. They love our unit because our product is, you know, it's, it's a different mission than, than anybody else. And we just tell them, hey, we don't have units for you. But yet on their side, we have people who was 10,000, 12,000, 15,000, no response. And we just had to make, make the decision. It's, we need to cut the ties, you know, and, uh, and I hate evictions, but I have really no result. I mean, so, yeah, so, so we did that so we can uh, get all we want is our units back. That's all we want. We're not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, suffocate the court with, you know, judgment and garnishing wages, whatever. Just give us our units back so we can rent it to somebody else who's going to pay us rent and have a nice place, you know, to, to raise their family. And yeah. this is what we have to do. I mean, you understand? Well, well Joe, you know, it's yeah. interesting. I, I think, would I be correct in saying that eviction is really a matter of last resort for a landlord? I mean, what, what you'd love to do is have the tenant stay and, and make payment plans and things like that. E- eviction is is costly. It's inefficient. I mean, it's if you're evicting somebody, it's because you really don't have any other option, right? That's correct. I mean... You know, for any landlord, eviction is the very last thing, you know, they want to do. I mean, we're in the business of renting, not evicting people, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's costly. It's, uh, you know, we have to, you know, all the loss of rent is pretty much gone. We have to rehab the unit for the next tenant. Yeah, I mean, I hate eviction, said Jeff, I really do, you know, but sometimes we have no choice. We have no choice. I mean, we got to pay taxes, we got to pay water bills, we got to pay, you know, uh, I mean, our electric bill, you know, the mortgages, the lenders. I mean, we just cannot afford to keep going at this level. How much would you? How much would you say, ballpark? You you are owed by the, the various tenants in, in back rent and stuff that you haven't been able to collect over the course of of the pandemic. I would say, you know, just this last batch, it was close to five million, five million dollars. You know, and what's so ironic, uh, Jeff, is this: after we filed, a lot of people came up with the cash. You know, the, the rent like immediately. So uh, there's a lot of people who are using the system, and uh, they are using our kindness, you know, to work toward this pandemic, you know, this uh, eviction moratorium. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people pay the rent literally the next day. We're talking like ten thousand, eleven thousand dollars. Well, you know, interestingly, because one of the things that's always struck me is if, if you don't, if somebody doesn't make their car payments, sooner or later, 
that the car is going to be repossessed. If you don't pay your cell phone bill or your cable bill, at some point in time, the, the, it's going to be shut off. Um, and and I guess from the perspective of a landlord, at some point in time, if you've done everything you possibly can to try to collect rent and, and the person, like you're saying, is not responsive, it, it re- really eviction becomes uh, the last resort. Absolutely. I mean, Jeff, you know, if you don't pay your bill, your phone bill, they, nobody's going to wait two years before they cut off your bill. I can get into the cut off within a month or, or maybe two months, if that, you know. And so, the same goes with, uh, you know, any other services, you know. Listen, you know, we're not trying to, all we want, give us our units back. If you cannot make the payment, you cannot make a arrangement with us, you know, we have created a, a payment agreement way before, you know, last year. If, if if you have a problem with payment, come talk to us. We will help you. You know, we will direct you. You know, you know we'll help you internally, or we can direct you to community advocate. And you see, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of money out there. But if you don't talk to me, how can I help you? And this is what uh, people they just don't understand. You know, so. Well, to that to that point, um, some of the newspaper articles and some of the, the TV coverage focuses on during the pandemic, your your companies, you know, received somewhere at least between six and seven million dollars in in rental assistance from from government agencies and and things like that. And I guess the implication is because you took money from the government, maybe you you, you shouldn't be able to foreclose on other people. I mean, how how does that all work? Well, Jeff, I mean. I do not want to send evidence. Seven million is a lot of money. I'm not going to deny that. But when you have almost 8,000 units, I mean, that doesn't even, you know, it just pays for a portion of the tenants. And those tenants, we have, you know, we have helped them, you know, uh, helped them to connect with, with uh, different communities, you know, uh, like SDC and uh, community advocates to help them with their rent. But that doesn't cover the whole bill. It's just, it's literally, it's a small portion of our, you know, operation execution expenses. So yeah, I mean, I'm thankful for that. And those people, are, the people who received the seven million, are still in their home as of today, because they have talked to us, they have called us, we have helped them. But if once again, you need to make a big effort. You cannot just mm-hmm. live for free. I mean, it's just it's simple as that. So would it be fair to say that the majority of people that you started the eviction actions against were people who were 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 in one fashion or another non-responsive? That you just that, that you weren't they weren't trying to work out a payment plan or they weren't re- responding to your emails or your knock on the door. It was just it, it, this was a matter of last resort. That is correct. It's really the majority are no response, and I mean when I mean no response, I mean. We send a text message, we send an email, phone calls, multiple times over the course of a year, a year and a half, you know, and that's correct. And if some people make the effort, it's a very low effort, you know. So we just have no choice. We really have no choice, you know. And our, you know, uh, the mortgage will be paid on time. They don't care about this. You know, energy bill, same thing. Uh, water bill, same thing. Taxes. You know, we've been over 20 million taxes the last, uh, you know, three years. This is a lucky one time. So, we can, any business cannot do a service or provide housing for free. There's no such thing as free housing. I mean, Jeff, you own a house, I'm assuming you have to pay taxes, you got to pay the water bill. There's no such thing as free living. This is the bottom line. So, 
and, and we had a lot of people just waiting to move in our units. Hundreds of people. And, we, and so we, you're just trying to get you're trying to get the units back. You've got people who are there who aren't paying. You've got other people who want to move in. And what you're saying is you, you just want the people who aren't paying out so you can rent them to, to new people who need the housing. All we want is our units back. We're not going to go after judgment. We are not going to go after garnishing wages. All we want is give us our units back. That's it. I don't be asking too much. Joe, do you, how, how do you – let me ask you, how, how do you feel about some of the, the coverage? As I, I look at some of the stories, every time your name appears in the newspaper, it, it's got like the, the phrase – um, Mequon Millionaire after it. There, there was a story a couple weeks ago, and I don't know if it was in the, the print edition, but certainly online, that's got a drone picture of the house. That you, they've got a picture, an aerial picture of the home that you live in in Mequon. And I, I guess the implication is here you have this guy that's made all this money, and, it, and yet they're still you know evicting hundreds and hundreds of people. Do you feel the coverage of this issue has been fair? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, listen, how can you make you know, a judgment on somebody that you just don't know. You just assume things. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. The media has not been fair. You know, I've been silent. You know, I like my privacy, my family privacy. But it is really an insult. Forget about me. How about the people, my, my employees, my subcontractors? I mean, if you drive in a city, what would you have? You're going to sell a building. They stand out on any building out there. I mean, we mm-hmm. provide... You know, in housing that nobody want to come in some neighborhoods that nobody want to do that. I mean, we come in this, you know, Metro uh, Milwaukee where really everybody forgot about it. Nobody want to invest on it. Here we are doing the right thing, making, you know, we're not gentrifying the neighborhoods, we're making it better for the people who are already here. And it is very unfair to, you know, it's literally, it's, it's an attack on I mean, I thought, you know, it's, it's just not fair. It really, the way I didn't describe it. And I've been silent, and I'm, you know, and, uh, but I think those days are over. It's time for me to, you know, to talk and, and state the facts. Well, Joe, I appreciate you spending some time with us this afternoon, and I, I think I should mention, I don't think, you and I have never met, so I, some, some people reached out to me, and I was glad to give you the opportunity to come on, because I, I have talked about this issue, and I think, again, you know, there's always two sides to a story, and from the perspective of a landlord like you, I mean, you you could invest your money in all sorts of things. You've chosen to invest it in in real estate, provide housing for people, and I guess some people think that landlords shouldn't be entitled to a return on their investment or to get their rent out. And I, I've never kind of bought into that idea. Any money we make, we invest it right back into the city of Milwaukee. I mean, no, no, so. Uh, listen, the goal here is this, you know, I came from nothing. I understand when you struggle. I completely understand that part. You know, I'm driving along over here in the same, you know, in the best side of town, and I see older buildings, you know, very nice people. I mean, I love the city. I mean, I spend all my time, all my life in the city of Milwaukee. I mean, I'm not just absent to landlord who, you know, goes somewhere on vacation. I'm here every day. <laughs> I, I drive, I'm in the grounds, I talk to people, I understand, I understand the situation. You know, we are on the good side, on the good team, not on the bad team. So, uh, the, some people have got some agenda, and they're trying to use 
you know, me and, and my company and my, and my, it really is an insult to my employees because they work very hard, very hard to please our tenants. You know, this is all about the tenants. I want a tenant to stay in their home. That is the very last thing I want to do is just, you know, I take that very seriously. You know, very, we have a, a huge responsibility in the city of Milwaukee and, and, uh, we, we understand our role in here. And, and we have a good relationship with the city, with, uh, with the police department, with our, sure our tenants are very nice people. And some, the media on that side, there's an agenda. And I just don't understand what is the goal. I still don't understand what, you know, what is the goal. I just Understood. don't understand. I came from a country that is a corrupt country, but this is really, it's incredible to me. I just don't understand it yet. So. Good enough. Well, Mr. Brada, thank you for spending some time this afternoon, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Absolutely. That's Joe Barada, the, uh, it, well, again, if you read the papers, he's the Mequon millionaire. Um, and I, I wanted to give, when they, they reached out, I wanted to give him an opportunity to present what I, I think is kind of the other side of the story with regard to the, this, this eviction crisis. All right. When we come back, let's find out what John McCure has on his mind for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is Jeff Wagner.